0: Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Events Podcast, where we bring you the audio from our public programs, featuring in-depth analysis of topics on China from scholars, journalists, authors, and policymakers. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org.
1: All right, everybody, we're at the appointed time, so we'll take advantage of Natalie being here. I, I just did a podcast with Natalie and I said she's an old friend she's a friend for many many decades is the way to put it as opposed to an old she still oh. looks so young yeah but I I've do. known her for uh, 40 something 40 something years yeah. so it's been since since our law school days but she has had a career she I've, then she followed me to Washington actually followed in my footsteps and when I was at the State Department legal advisor's office, she was at the United States Treasury. And we were both working on uh, normalization of relations with China. She then went on to a long, illustrious career at the World Bank. And then, because she speaks Chinese and she knows Chinese law, she was invited to become, what would you call it? Not the initial, you were ultimately the inaugural general counsel, but... What was your title before you became general? I was chief counsel for the negotiations, really. Chief counsel for the negotiations, and she literally put together the constituent documents for the AIIB. And what's so interesting about the book is, as I find myself all too often saying here, the book tells the real story, and the media, and often the U.S. government gets the story wrong. So you look at this, and it takes you down to literally the, the grassroots of this organization. And you read it, and you kind of go, this was based upon global institutional models and was not as often portrayed in the media and in by the U.S. government something that was intended to change the world order. So the book really tells that story in incredible detail. And I thank you for that contribution. So Natalie's going to make a few opening remarks, and then we'll have a discussion, I think, about the book, about the AIIB, and then probably about US-China relations
2: generally. Good. I'll, I'll listen to what you have to say. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Thanks for joining us.
2: Well, I'm delighted to be here. I've been hearing about this committee probably for at least 40 years. Um, Back to ping-pong, but so it's really wonderful to actually be in even if these are your new offices to be in the building So I want to talk about three things first. What's AIB? Why are you interested? What's special about the book and then? What what about AIB? What's different? Why was it set up that that sort of thing and then I'm delighted to answer questions so AIB is the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank there are those who call it the AIIB, usually from, as they say, across the pond. But I just can't get my tongue around that. So for me, it's AIIB. It's a multilateral development bank that finances infrastructure projects in that benefit Asia, generally speaking. It has a capital of $100 billion. It has 86 approved members from East Asia, South Asia, the Pacific Islands, Central Asia, West Asia, Oman, Saudi Arabia, but also Africa, Latin America, most of Europe, um, and one country in North America, Canada, not the United States, and not Japan. If you've heard about it, you've heard of it as China's answer to the World Bank, or something less polite. And it is very similar to the World Bank, and to the Asian Development Bank, and to the Inter-American Development Bank, and the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development, and about six or seven other multilateral development banks. So what's special about the book? Well, I had this really unusual role, which was I got to help set up a new international organization. Why did I get that chance? My guess is because I'd done a lot of two things. One, I had studied about China, and thanks to Professor Cohen, I had studied about Chinese law. But despite that, I couldn't find a job. (laughs) And I ended up working in the U.S. Treasury Department uh, when there were no China-related questions. But as as Steve has mentioned, about five months after I got there, President Carter normalized relations with China. And so suddenly I had a China-related job. But even though I worked on normalization, nobody expected that China would be interested in the World Bank, which primarily makes loans for development projects. And at that point, China was uh, in a period of self-reliance. You also have to join the International Monetary Fund in order to join the World Bank. And China was not, at that point, very open about having international institutions come in and look at their finances. So it didn't really seem likely that China would (coughs) want to come into the World Bank. But in fact, in 1980, they did. And I was a young lawyer in the Treasury Department. And I got these questions from the World Bank Legal Department. Because they heard I'd written this paper on international, on China's participation in international organizations when I was in law school. Um, so I answered their questions. And then I told my client, the development bank officer. And he said, well, did you ask him about jobs? And I said, no. You know, I don't know anything about banking and finance. And he said, you're an idiot. Um, my job is to get more Americans employed at the World Bank. I'll call them up. So about six months later, I got a job at the World Bank. And I stayed there for 30 years. And I worked a lot on the World Bank's projects in China as a lawyer. And then the last 10 years, I worked on governance, which is to say the insides of the World Bank, the role of the shareholders, the role of the president, the role of the board, uh, how you could reform that. And then I retired. So I guess when the Chinese were looking for someone who they knew, who knew something about how you set up international development banks, I fit the bill. Um, so I got to be the general counsel, and I got to help set this up. But the reason I wrote the book was because when I started drafting the charter, I called up other lawyers around the world at the Asian Bank and retired from the European Bank, the World Bank, and said, what would you change and what would you keep? And so I talked to lots and lots of people and got a lot of ideas. that. You know, some of them are in the charter, some of them are in the book. But many of them said, well, you remember that book Mr. Shahada wrote. Mr. Shahada was the general counsel of the World Bank for about 15 years and wrote many books. But one of them was a comparative guide to the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development, which told you who had which clauses. And to my surprise, they all said, I had that book on my shelf and I used it all the time. So I thought, well, I've just redone that about 25 years later, so maybe people would be interested in this book. And then, as Steve said, I started to read lots of media coverage about AIB. And I thought, many people are making a big deal of things that are normal. And they're missing the point of what's different. So perhaps it would be useful if I try to write a book So I've tried to write part of it that's more generally accessible and part of it that's incredibly detailed legally because I never want to have to look up this stuff again either. (laughs) So in brief, what about AIB? Well, the interesting story that I think people know about now is its establishment story. So there were thoughts about an Asian investment bank actually dating back to the 2000s and the many discussions that happened after the late 90s Asian financial crisis. But it was really when Xi Jinping proposed that China wanted to help set up an Asian infrastructure investment bank in 2013 that this took off with some momentum. And the Chinese consulted with lots of different countries And about a year later, signed a memorandum with 21 others, so 22 regional countries saying, we want to set up an AIB, an Asian Infrastructure Bank, and this is what it's going to look like. And we're going to finish our negotiations on the charter in eight months, and it's going to be operating in a year. So pretty tight timetable. Um, In that space of time, uh, a number of other regionals joined. And, you know, the first negotiation was in Mumbai in January of 2015. There were 26 countries around the table, including Saudi Arabia and New Zealand, but lots of other East Asian, South Asian countries. And if AIB had stopped there, I wouldn't have been written the book because nobody would want to read it and you wouldn't be here to hear this talk. But what happened instead is that A lot of other countries were also thinking about joining AIB. Some big countries in Asia, such as Australia and Korea and Japan, although in the end Japan didn't come in. And a number of countries in Europe. And there was a lot of talk about would the US come in. And there were some concerns, I'd say, among those uh, non-regional countries and some of the larger regional ones about whether this bank which sounded like the other ones but was going to be led by China whether it would have the same standards for lending projects and who would be running it what would the governance be how would it compare to some of China's own development banks so there was some reluctance but suddenly in March of 2015 uh, the United Kingdom announced they were going to join the negotiations and March 31 was the deadline so within the next two weeks, a whole lot of other countries joined. And in the end, there were 57, 37 regionals and 20 non-regionals, uh, not the US and not Japan. One thing I'll say about that story is I didn't know until I started doing some research for the book that as far as the US and regional development banks, Reluctance has a history, as they say in China. The US was the proponent with the UK of setting up the World Bank, but 10 years later was opposed to setting up an inter-American bank until US relations with Latin America got so bad that they thought it would be a good idea if the US supported that. And the US became the largest shareholder. The US was not supportive of the first proposals for the Asian Development Bank. But in the context of the Vietnam War, not long after that, the US policy changed. And they wanted to do something positive for East Asia. So the US became the controlling shareholder with Japan and the Asian Development Bank. European Bank for Reconstruction and Development to help Central Europe in 1990 the US was also very reluctant but is the largest shareholder so this isn't to say I think the US is joining AIB tomorrow but I didn't realize that there was this context and it's not crazy because before you go to the trouble of setting up a new institution you would say Aren't the old ones doing a good job? Couldn't the old ones do this? Why should I? I've got the deepest pocket. I'm going to get asked for the most money. Now, they don't have the deepest pocket anymore, but close. So reluctance <laughs> isn't crazy. But I think the motivations for AIB for the other countries, for China, it was I'm sure there was a strategic connection to China's overall relations with its periphery, if you want to call it that, a very far periphery. I think there's also a view that infrastructure was really important uh, for China's own development. Uh, And there's a way in which China benefited so much from the support for 30 years of the World Bank and then the Asian Development Bank that I think they saw the benefit of these institutions. I mean, why would you recreate something if you thought it was a lousy institution? So let me, before I will leave the sort of detailed stuff for your questions. but. Since in the two years since AIB's been set up, they've approved 26 projects around their membership uh, of about $4.5 billion. The projects are basically loans, guarantees, equity investments for public and private projects uh, in infrastructure. They now have 86 approved members. Uh, For comparison, the Asian Development Bank has 67. The World Bank has 189. Um, they have a triple A rating, and from what I read in the paper, they will probably be issuing a bond issue and borrowing in the markets, as most of these banks do. Um, so, so far, they seem to be following the multilateral playbook, and there are a lot of incentives to do that. But one thing I learned in looking at all the other banks is expect the unexpected. There are all sorts of examples of, you know, cataclysmic changes that nobody anticipated. So I'm not anticipating. I'm just saying there'll be some. That's my introduction. Terrific.
1: Um, talk about your hiring. Um, President Jin, did you know him well? He writes a lovely introduction to your book. He is quite a figure, uh, one who have briefed many National Committee delegations to China both in his current role and in his previous roles. Um, And he chose an American. Tell us what happened.
2: Well, I think that my choice really comes down to the same two reasons that most clients pick their lawyers, trust and competence. So uh, President Jin was, in fact, in the World Bank Briefly in the 80s. He was China's deputy director alternate director on the board for a few years He was in the Ministry of Finance uh, at various levels ending up as vice minister uh, Related to the World Bank program He was in a senior position probably director general or higher When I had the great fortune to put together a legal reform project in China, where the World Bank uh, provided assistance for the drafting of about 50 different laws and regulations and some training and a database at the now moved State Council legal office, Um, that was from 94 to 2004. So I guess we knew each other pretty well at that point. I have a wonderful photograph of the Mission the appraisal mission for that project where I was the task manager and the lawyer where I brought my kids with me to China and there used to be a huge um, Wooden elephant sort of a Thai or Yunnan elephant in the Ministry of Finance and I have a great picture of my kids at six and eight um, With then not president Jin Li Chun at the elephant so I guess Jin and, and his colleagues in MOF knew what I'd done. And, but they also, you know, had, my Chinese, thank goodness, had nothing to do with this because I think what they were interested in was the role I'd played in governance reform at the World Bank. And they said, we want you to sit at the board like you did there.
1: Did being an American cut in favor or against your getting that job?
2: Well, in Washington, I usually say that my U.S. passport was less of a hindrance in working for AIB than it was in getting promoted at the World Bank, (laughs) which unfortunately is true. Um, I mean, as it happens, it's been a good example, I think, for AIB to make the point that they're not looking at, um, they're looking for expertise and technical qualifications and not political ones.
1: But they're looking for nationality diversification right that when you meet with the senior management of AIIB it is a united nations that it has representatives from every continent uh, in the senior management it's quite striking when you go there
2: uh, that is partly for beneficial reasons, partly because the charter says from as wide a geographical basis as possible, and partly because those positions are very tight hardly fought um, among different countries who want to have their representatives and how many will be regional and how many will be non-regional. It's not as obvious in the World Bank because there are 30 vice presidents and above, but for the other ones where there are four or six, um, it's quite obvious who gets which one.
1: Talk about the first, how many loans have there, how many investments and loans have there been so far since the inception? 26. 26. And how many have been done in conjunction with other um, multilateral institutions?
2: So I think six or seven. I mean, I was there for the first four of which three were- Six or seven of- 26- have, uh, six or seven have been done by AIB. So, 16- so 20
1: have been done Yeah. in conjunction with right. other multi- okay. So
2: many of them have been co-financed. And what does that mean? Well, it means a couple of things. First, one of the concerns you could have read about AIB was, would they have the same environmental policies? Would they have the same project appraisal policies? Would they have the same social policies and procurement as the other multilateral development banks? Or would they be more like China's own banks? So the answer is they have policies and procedures that are quite comparable to the others. In fact, some of them are updated, one, because it's a good thing to do, but also it's very difficult to change policies in 70 or 50-year-old organizations. There are lots of vested interests and even if paragraph 18b no longer makes sense, somebody will want something else for changing it. So you have that moment when you start something new where you can actually try much more than you can later to have a rational policy. But it also means that I think co-financing is something AIB will do a lot of um, for some time to come, and I can illustrate that with some of the projects. For one thing, some of these infrastructure projects are very large and nobody wants to take all of that risk. so the more you can share the risk with other like-minded institutions, the better off you know you'll take different pieces of the of the puzzle, but there is certainly going to be some interest. Give us a for instance. Well, there's, I didn't work on it, but there's, a, I think it's an Azerbaijan pipeline that the project cost is something like, the total project cost is $8.6 The what, AIB. What, what kind of pipeline? Trans-Anatolian natural gas pipeline natural project. Natural gas, OK. Um, the AIB loan is $600 million the EBRD European Bank for Reconstruction and Development 500 million the World Bank 800 million EIB the European Investment Bank 1.3 billion and there's some other you know other ones in there so that's one reason the other reason is many of these banks now are very much decentralized which is to say they have offices in most of the countries where they work and staff and that's very costly And Jin's motto is, lean, clean, and green. And so I think if you're going to stay lean, AIB is probably not going to have regional offices or local offices in anything like that dimension. So if I look, for example, at one of the first projects, which is a slum upgrading project in Indonesia, which was prepared by the World Bank, there are a couple of advantages to it. It's something where... There are subprojects all over a vast country, but very small infrastructure, um, you know, little culverts and weirs and things in small locations. So if you look at the World Bank report for that project, they usually have an annex listing the staff there are 40 names of the staff of the World Bank in the country because you're going to have to supervise and prepare something that's across across a very vast archipelago. So I think for AIB, if you co-finance something like that, you pay a fee to your co or some kind of service arrangement with the other bank for their services. But that's got to be way more efficient than having to try to have the same kind of structure um, in every country. The other advantage you can see in something like the Indonesia project is some of the other banks are constrained in how much they can lend, either because their capital uh, is is uh, constrained, or because they have limits, single borrower limits for prudence as to how much you'll lend. So instead of the World Bank making, say, a 400 million loan for this project, they can make 200 million, and AIB puts in 200 million and as a result the world bank can do 200 million on another project which is what makes most of these institutions tick
1: was there any was there ever any hope that the united states would join in the course of the creation of this or was it always an assumption that because the us was not going to be the dominant party they were not going to join
2: well as far as I know, there were certainly discussions between, that have even been reported between Chinese officials who were managing the consultation process and the U.S. I personally never thought the U.S. would join, uh, in the first round at least, because to join these institutions requires congressional action. You have to get uh, some kind of approval for the treaty that is the charter. And you have to fund the US shareholding. And at that point in 2014, the US administration could not get a lot of things approved in Congress, which I personally thought were more important, and even other things like the reforms of the International Monetary Fund, which were pretty important. Those got approved actually in December 2015. So the chances that you, the US could actually have come in I thought were pretty small. Um, whether the U.S. will come in, there's still some of those same issues, but there's also a question about does the U.S. only want to join multilateral development banks when they are the largest shareholder? They're not a controlling shareholder in the African Development Bank, um, and you know they're they certainly can be outvoted by others in many of these other banks. So. Why does
1: the why do you th- the U.S. government has a very and he, here you've described kind of the reason I ask about the number of transactions that were done in conjunction with the other multilateral institutions is there's a view in the U.S. government and to some degree in the in the in the media um, that this institution is intended to almost overturn the world order, that it's part of the—if you look at the national security strategy, it's part of China being a revisionist power, and that I've had people in the government tell me directly that, that you know, this is an example of why relations with China are going to be difficult. And I kind of say, gosh, it's building on. To the existing institutions. It's not overturning them. Why do you think this view exists in the U.S. government?
2: Well, I can speculate. I think it's not about the structure, because I remember reading a year or so ago, after AIB had been set up, about Japan's <clears throat> concerns that were about governance and about um, sort of financing decisions. And I thought, I wonder what that means, because I I took an awful lot from the Asian Development Bank charter. And Japan is, with the US, the basically controlling parties in the ADB. So there is one difference, and that's the the shareholding numbers. So some of this is about control. You know, I, I used to hear people say, before they all came in, that they were concerned about an institution that was going to be located in Beijing, where China was going to be the largest shareholder, and the president would be Chinese. It's not required that the president be Chinese. The president has to be regional. They are 40-something regional countries to choose from. But I think for the moment and for a while, the president will be Chinese. And my reaction was, yeah, you know, that is a problem. I've lived there. It's called the World Bank. <laughs> where it's located in Washington the Treasury Department and I know because that was my move is a block and a half nobody paid me for that move and um, you know and if it's sad to say if you look at the history of some of the other banks you know there is an awful lot of geopolitics in how these banks operate and in what the US role has been and the role of others I mean it's not that everybody else is You know, everyone is there in their national interest. So it may be that the U.S. is well aware of the kind of influence the U.S. has had, regardless of the structure, and they may expect that the Chinese would want to have the same kind of influence.
1: Why did the Japanese not join in the end?
2: Probably some of the same reasons. And and actually, for the future, I think, the more interesting question is when will or will Japan join? Because I do think if this becomes a real Asian institution, I think Japan would be an important part of that. Um, And the interesting issues are when you get caught up in the details of the voting power. Because these are set up primarily like corporations and you have votes depending on how many shares you buy, um, nobody goes up except somebody goes down. So, if Japan wanted to join... every you know, 100% is already allocated, so if you want to make room for Japan, either everybody goes squeezes down to 98 or 97%, or you have some jockeying. And China's the largest shareholder right now at about 26% of voting power. Next is India, and then Russia, And then you've got a mix of Korea, Australia, um, Indonesia, Saudi Arabia, (coughs) Germany, France, UK. So some of those may welcome Japan, and some of them may not. Same for the US. So it really is a global issue in a way. It's not just a US-China or Japan-China issue. But all of these are things that can get worked out if the parties want to do it.
1: This was an intense process. Obviously, you're commuting from Washington to Beijing, um, and a because of the U.S. government's attitude, a a somewhat politicized process. Is there anything you would have done differently?
2: Hmm. Well, I did have the sense of being radioactive. <laughs> Um, there were certainly some people who weren't able to talk to me. I, I think in a technical sense...
1: I've I used you in my speeches defending AIB. I said, <laughs> why would... If they... I did. Yeah. If the intention was to create an institution that they would control and would have governance that was not transparent, they wouldn't have chosen you as general counsel. It was, you know, they would have gone and found somebody else. It, it... So I might have made you radioactive.
2: <laughs> no, there are lots of articles that said that. So I, um, you know, maybe they're true, maybe they're not. One thing I would have done, which is a wonky thing to say, is I would have studied international treaty law a little bit better. <laughs> because these institutions, once they're set up, basically operate within their own rules and their own governance structure. And that part I was kind of familiar with. But when you set them up, it's under a document that is a legal instrument that is a treaty. And if you happen to be negotiating it, people ask you questions about what the process should be. Um, And you you know, I'm cattle. I used the time difference to good avail when I got some questions <laughs> at the last negotiation in Singapore. Fortunately, some of the consultants who were helping me were in London. And so they were still up at midnight when I was about to jump out the window. So that was helpful. What was so th- was the internet.
1: Elizabeth wants to interrupt with a question. I Go think, ahead. Is that OK? Yes.
0: So- um, you mentioned, of course, we know that AIAB.
1: Elizabeth runs the Ford Foundation yeah. office in China.
0: AIAB is a lean, green, you know, it's, 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 it's been developed with broad international norms and standards of governance, etc. cetera. Um, I want two questions. One is, do you think that AIAB gets lumped into broadly China's aid and investment that goes through other banks, and that's why people think it's, perhaps not as up to international norms and standards because the Chinese other development banks are less transparent. We know less about sort of their governance structure. And so that it sort of gets lumped into that and misunderstood in that way. And my second question is, do you think that AIIB, over time, will demonstrate a model for governance that will be adopted by some of others, China's other development banks? Because I think right now most of China's money actually goes out through those less transparent banks than goes out through AIIB.
2: Well, certainly the lumping together story, which is not, you know not surprising right if you're looking at what China's doing they've put a lot of money into this what used to be called one belt one road is now called the belt and road initiative they have some of that money is going through china's own i think probably through china development bank maybe through exim there's also a silk road fund under the people's bank AIB isn't part of that in the sense that it's not technically connected, but many of the countries in the Belt and Road Initiative are AIB members. Out of 86 (coughs) countries, you know, there's quite a few. But, you know, I often say with my Washington hat on if I were writing the briefing paper for President Xi about the strategy, I would definitely include AIB in the same strategy. Mm -hmm. If I thought about it from why did China do this? Um, and I don't know, because I never asked. And even if I asked, I still wouldn't know. Um, so from that point of view, I think it is part of the same strategy for China, but it is not run the same way. And if you look at why does the US, why does any country join these institutions? Part of it is leverage, because you put in a dollar, and in China's case, everybody else puts in 70, You know, 75. You put in 25, they put in 75. You put in one, they put in another three. So you get a lot more bang for the renminbi or the buck and part of it is you get a technical staff in some cases where you can get people from around the world that maybe you couldn't get in your own institutions and some of it is you know you think about political cover You know, it's not, the protest, if it comes, and it will come, is about the infrastructure dam or highway that AIB financed. To date, the only complaints I've seen have been for things that AIB co-financed with the World Bank, which doesn't say to me there's not a problem, but it says if you were worrying about standards, that's not the problem. (laughs) As for other Chinese banks learning from AIB, you know, my sense of the last... 40 years of reforms has been that much of the reforms have spread by example. You know, when in the 80s, when there were no domestic legal structures, I would see joint venture contracts between Chinese entities, and they'd say, oh, we copied them from the foreign one, right? And they weren't crazy. So I do think there'll be some kind of effect. Um, it is interesting that a relatively open, I mean, I, I did everything in here as public. You know, I, maybe I knew where to look, but the stuff is all on the web. There were, in fact, when the articles of agreement were signed in Beijing in June of 2015, I think it was the New York Times, among others, that commented that they were immediately on the Ministry of Finance website. I hope it was the English because the Chinese isn't really great. But you know, it's it's legally binding, and there is a clause that says that the bank will rely on the English for all of its decisions. It's tucked away, but it's there.
3: <laughs> David, thank you very much. I have questions on two topics. I'm David Sandelow at Columbia University. Um, the first is on carbon. Um, what are the AIIB's standards on carbon emissions and, and, and climate impacts? And it sounds like you've done a comparison with other MDBs. How do they compare to the standards for other MDBs? And then second, very different on governance. Mm-hmm. Imagine a very different future U.S. administration that, that said, we want to play, we want to be in. And, and just to demonstrate how much we want to be in, since we're the world's largest economy, or second largest economy, we want to contribute at the same level as the Chinese government. We would like to have the same share as the Chinese government in the AIIB. So just from a legal standpoint, would that be possible? And what would be the dynamics around that type of discussion?
2: So on carbon, um, the AIB adopted an energy strategy about a year ago. I've had nothing to do with that. I left in 2016. And I did not compare the policies that didn't exist um, when I left. But there is an environmental and social framework. The person, actually, who was probably more influential from the World Bank than me was a retiree who'd been the chief environmental um, guru at the World Bank for many, many years and at many other multilateral banks. And he's still there, Steve Lintner. And he's an American as well. Um, So Lintner. Lintner. Um, So I think AIB's environmental and social framework is pretty good and I you know where they ended up on carbon they they certainly one of their themes is renewables and um, and helping countries meet their Paris commitments so maybe the US won't be interested ever but um, as far as the shareholding, so the, the rules that the chief negotiators agreed to in a public document were that the basic criteria would be the share of the, either the regional economy or the, or the non-regional economy. They're split into regional and non-regional shareholding. And that the measure of that would be GDP, and that would be indicative only for non-regionals, because the non-regionals didn't want to necessarily be bound by that. The shareholding at this point is 7525. The Board of Governors can change that. So the US, following those rules, could come in with a very large share of the non-regional shareholding, um, which won't get them anywhere near the share of China. Parties could decide to do something different. But think about what that means. So, Again, it's a zero-sum game. So if you add shares just for the U.S., so Germany put in four billion and they got about four percent of the vote, and the U.K. and France put in three billion and they got about three percent of the vote. Do they want to go down? And Korea and Australia are also about three, four percent, but they're in the regional box. So do they want Canada's one percent? Do they want to go down for the to accommodate the U.S. Maybe they do, and maybe they don't. So again, it it at its heart, it's going to be motivated, perhaps, by US-China relations. But when you come to figuring out what size you come in at and how much money the US wants to spend, <coughs> um, I think that everybody else is in the game.
3: So if you were, if I, if you were making a pitch to a future U.S. president in Congress who were inclined to participate? What arguments would you, would you use about why it's in U.S. national interest to join in light of the rules that you just uh,
2: decided? It, it certainly would be in the U.S. national interest if they wanted to be part of the decision-making of this institution and if they wanted to support infrastructure in Asia. The arguments we used to use at Treasury to try to get the Congress to approve those appropriations, one of them was procurement. Many of these banks used to have procurement restricted to members. That means those billions of dollars go to developing countries or developed countries, and they buy tractors, and they have people construct ports, and you want your contractors and providers to be able to bid for those because they get a lot of money. The World Bank actually went to open its procurement in the last 15 years. And AIB has opened procurement like a few other banks. So there's actually no US companies can bid for AIB projects now anyway. Um, the, The current policy framework is already done. Otherwise, you would say you want a seat at the table for any changes in it. But I personally think it would be salutary for the United States to join one of these institutions and not control um, I think the US has a lot to add to these institutions, um, and it doesn't have to be about money. Um, and it would be a way of you know, being part of the, the game. The one thing where I think you know, something may or may not happen is AIB is, has a provision that allows it to provide assistance to non-members. You might not want to lend money to a non-member country, but you might want to give grants. For example, the World Bank, through a lot of great legal machinery, is able to provide grants for West Bank Gaza, which is not a member, or for East Timor, before they came, became a member and became Timor-Lest. But it's a really difficult thing, because the institutions are mo- mostly supposed to use their funds to benefit members. AIB has a clause that says if you're not a member, the Board of Governors by a really high majority can decide it's in the interest of all of the members to do something. So who's not a member? North Korea. And if something were to happen, North Korea is eligible to apply for the Asian Development Bank or the World Bank and the IMF, which is what they'd have to do to be an AIB member. But if you wanted to do something really quickly, you could probably put a trust fund in AID, um, and you might be able to, you know, use that mechanism. So, you know, there's a lot. I keep saying I when I drafted this, I left all the windows unlocked, but just make sure you have a safety net when you open them.
1: <laughs> Henry, um, from the outset, what was the reasoning? We all know the impression out there, of course, that was a Chinese bank. But what did the, the founders see as the reasoning for the necessity to create AIB? And in the end, how what is the difference between AIB and ADB? The second question would be, of the high-profile completed projects in the ERI, how much participation was there by the AIB in projects like in Pakistan or Kazakhstan, or were they
2: really? Well, just to start with the last one, I don't I don't know what the BRI projects look like. There are a number of different think tanks that have um, groups that are looking at them. Um, I nev- We never talked about BRI when I was at AIB. Um, but for most of these projects, at least the development banks, they take five to seven years to complete. So what you hear about is approving the loan or the investment or the guarantee things just start then. (laughs) And it'll be a while. Uh, In terms of the founders, I mean, most of what I I heard, you know, is again, I was in a lot of the details um, is the sense that infrastructure is really important. I think there was a sense of many, in all the multilateral circles, that infrastructure had been somewhat neglected. Um, And if you look at things like G20 discussions and others in the 2013, 2014, you know, there's a global infrastructure facility at the World Bank. There's a hub in Australia. So there's a lot of attention to infrastructure. The reports that people quoted said that the gap of what existed to fund infrastructure development in Asia was about $8 trillion. So that's a lot more money than ADB, World Bank, and AIB combined um, could provide. Even if that was off by half, <laughs> it's a lot and I don't know over what period of time so that's a lot of what I heard um, in terms of ADB and AIB I means some of the differences are that AI ADB lends for developing member countries um, and not for um, all members and AIB does have the same kind of instruments. ADB does have the same instruments. AIB has a provision where they can, if there are new instruments that the financial wizards come up with, the Board of Governors can approve that too. Um, My view of a lot of these things was instead of trying to Sort things out with brilliant legal arguments. If it's a good thing to do, go to your highest authority, tell them why it's a good thing to do, make the case, and get a really high majority.
3: Flexibility.
2: Yeah, but don't make it about how brilliant lawyers are. I mean, I know it keeps a lot of us in business, but I think it's a better way to run an institution. You know, the voting, the the thing that you will read the most probably is that AIB has a non-resident board. If you think about I think most corporations everywhere that's normal but for this funny little world of multilateral development banks the World Bank has a resident board in Washington and there's an ADB board in Manila and there's you know a few others there are also a a bunch of international development banks like that have non-resident boards, such as the European Investment Bank, which has a bigger book than all of them, which is based in Luxembourg. There are a few sub-regionals, like the Caribbean Development Bank, the Black Sea Trade and Development Bank. So, to me, the most interesting question is not where does the board sit, but what does it do, and is it going to micromanage, or is it really going to keep an eye on on management, um, and is management going to take the responsibility? And also in Today's age, you can have virtual meetings. You don't need to have physical presence in the building. You also, in terms of oversight, the people who are sent to be on these resident boards are generally sent by their ministries of development or finance, and they're often our development officials. So they're not necessarily people who are trained to spot the problems in these projects. So I think actually their meeting to approve the projects doesn't really add. I think if they were really worried about it, you know, set up some internal good housekeeping seal of approval and you know have somebody say that every project meets that. But expecting a political body of 25 in Washington or 12 in Manila to really give you a feel for that is, doesn't make sense to me. Also, for the borrowing or the recipient country, you spend something like 18 months preparing a project. There's some of these have lots of detailed engineering. You negotiate the whole thing, and then you wait for an approval. What happens if they want to say no? It just it it just there's something wrong with that piece of the system. So that's short shorter chance.
4: Jerry, what about investment? Uh, I remember when the World Bank started to get interested in China in the early 80s, they had a special investment vehicle that, combined with commercial investors, try to encourage investment in China. Uh, To what extent do you see AIIB involving itself in investment, not just loans or grants?
2: So I'm glad you asked that question. So part of what AIB, I think, seeks to do is to have a very large part be in private sector and non-governmental investment. And in fact, they've already done quite a few projects. Um, the one, quote, non-regional project, for example, is in Egypt, because it's just over the UN definition, I found, of Asia. And it's 11 small solar projects, um, all you know non-government, co-financed with the World Bank's non-government lending arm, the International Finance Corporation. And they've just released a strategy on how they see themselves on AIB's sort of, uh, you know, attracting money and creating markets for infrastructure development, where they talk about AIB partners and, and then AIB leads and then they create markets. So I think they very much are involved in different kinds of investments and not just the standard loan to a government. Which is one reason why I have to say, besides the commute, I'm really happy that I did what I could because I spent my career at the World Bank, literally at the bank part, um, which means that I've done no private sector investments. And one of the things I learned in talking to people around the world who had is that it's a completely different process. Even when you think about when do you get the board involved, and what kind of detail can you give them, and how much is going to change, and what your policy, how far down the line can you have your policies apply for procurement or for environment. So my successor has a lot of experience with uh, with that sector as well as others, and you know I think that it was good for AIB that I did the institutional stuff, and they'll, if they're going to make a mark. It will not be because it's a beautiful edifice. It'll be because they do interesting operations and benefit. Will yes. they set
4: up a special vehicle, do you think?
2: So they don't have to. Um, but I can't claim credit for that. So the World Bank was set up just to do loans with go- and guarantees with government guarantee. In the 1950s, they set up something, which is a separate international organization called the International Finance Corporation. They probably could have amended the charter to do investments and then subsequently equity, but they didn't. The other development banks since then have all put all of the functions in the same charter, even if they do some, you know, the proportion changes. They can also do soft loans like the International Development Association, so they could have concessional lending. But the problem initially with concessional lending is the money has to come from somewhere. And unlike loans and investments, it doesn't come back very quickly. I mean, if you give 30 year grants, it's going to be a while. Michelle.
0: Hi, I'm Michelle Fuchs with the Schiller Institute. And I was out today um, on the public sidewalk with a bunch of big signs, maps of not just the current Belton Road, but with some of our proposals for large-scale global development, and talking to people passing by, whether they're business people or normal Americans or whomever, about the, our idea that the United States join the Belt and Road Initiative, which would be great on the international scale, but also the United States has a massive infrastructure deficit. The Army Corps of Engineers says uh, we need 2.4 trillion dollars by 2025, just to main, just to bring what we have up to speed, let alone the what you thought of is a proposal that's been floated that Japan and China might be interested in depositing their U.S. Treasury holdings into a new U.S. national bank that could then be used to issue investments into building up U.S. infrastructure.
2: So I have no view on that. I mean, I did come here on the train yesterday, so I'm well. I'm well aware did you of. Fall into a. <coughs> <laughs> no, but it's gotten markedly worse over the last few years. Um, you know, some of the restric- the obviously since Belt and Road Initiative is a very loose, um, I think of it as a branding of a lot of different activities.
0: Yeah, it's more of a
2: concept. Right. So U.S. joining that, I mean, the U.S. did send a representative to the seminar last May or the symposium, whatever they ended up calling it. I I think there's another one this year, but I don't know. Um I think you know a lot of the questions would be where if you said Japan and China wanted to spend their put some of their money in investment in the U.S. That's certainly possible. I think many other countries might question whether they why they wanted to do that. You know why should they be funding infrastructure in the United States? But as for the legal mechanism, you know whatever works.
1: Dep- is, is this this would be. Uh, like infrastructure with returns or it would be kind of
0: depositing it in a US national bank, like we would have to have one.
2: Create have one. Create you make they've talk, bank, just talk about it.
0: Would give them an opportunity to put these treasury holdings in a place where they'll probably get a higher return than they do with just holding on to them as they are right now. And then the and then we whatever the whatever the national bank decides to invest into this would be a collateral that would be then, that we would then be able to issue loans for great projects, whether through public organizations or in the case of the Tennessee Valley Authority that we built back in the time of Roosevelt. That was technically a private corporation that was issued credit from a technically public reconstruction finance corporation. So it was done as a private thing, but it was done with the public funding. And these, yeah. The, you know, you have this question for the United States: Where are we going to get the money? Where are we going to get the money? But they have over two trillion dollars, kind of waiting, waiting.
2: Well, you'd have to borrow against it. I don't think they're going to get anyway. I'm not. It's not my area, so I shouldn't okay. speak.
0: I appreciate your consideration.
1: Yeah. Introduce yourself.
3: Yes. Yeah. Thun, and I would like to. Has two questions. One is what are the big difference among IMF World Bank and AIIB? Uh, second question what do you think about the transparency of AIIB that is still satisfy the standard or concern of USA? Thank you.
2: Thank you for your question. So let's take IMF out of the discussion, because it is a completely different organization with a different function. It is not a development bank. It is a international organization that acts with, with its member countries both, for all of its member countries, with the surveillance of its financial systems. It's different. And there's nothing to compare between IMF and IMF and World Bank have some similar governance structures because they were born together in Bretton Woods New Hampshire in 1944 but their functions are maybe parallel but they're quite different so it's a little more useful to compare IBRD which is the bank part of the World Bank and AIB Um, and there I've already said you know, one of the differences that people point out is the board and the fact that the World Bank has a resident board and AIB has a non-resident board. In fact, all of these other MDBs, when they negotiated, they always talked about maybe having a non-resident board. So that's one of the things that people will often talk about is being different. Um, the World Bank also has um, a tradition Uh, That's not in the articles that the president is always in a U.S. National Um, And the head of the IMF has always been a European Um, That's not written into the legal framework um, But that's been the practical result Um, the language in AIB about the selection of the president refers to an open transparent and merit-based process for selecting the president and the vice presidents that's language that's been used at the World Bank but it's not anywhere in the legal charter so it's the first place it is is in the AIB Um, in the World Bank the US has a veto of one decision, and that is amendments of the charter. In the IMF, if you wanted to know, there are about 10 decisions that have a veto. Why does the US have a veto? So unlike the United Nations, where the UN Charter specifically names the countries whose approval is necessary for Security Council decisions, the Development banks don't name the countries. They have a percentage of voting power. So technically speaking, it's not one country's veto. But in most of these banks, one or two countries together can add up to that voting power. So in the World Bank, it's 15 percent now. So there's one decision that requires 85 percent. The U.S. keeps more than 15 percent. So you can't get 85 percent without the U.S. But you probably couldn't get 85% without all of the EU. And you probably couldn't get 85% without China, Russia, India, Brazil, South Africa, and Saudi Arabia. So it's not just a US number, although it looks that way. In the case of AIB, the highest number is 75%, not 85%. So China, at 26% or so, has a veto. But you could add up five countries, and they could also block it. Most of those decisions, you need 75%, and you need 2 thirds of the members. So it's not that one country can make the decision, but one country can block the decision. So those are some of the things you would probably hear as differences between AIB and IBRD.
1: How would AIB be in the context of the U.S.-China relationship? Mm. Since this is the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations,
2: well, that's an interesting question because if you think of the World Bank as a U.S. bank, then you could think of AIB as a Chinese bank, but. I don't think of the World Bank as a U.S. bank, although many of its critics do. <laughs> um, I think of it as a global bank. I think you know, the phenomenon of AIB could have provided an opportunity for the U.S. and China to collaborate when it was being founded. I think they could st- it could still provide an opportunity for the U.S. and China to collaborate on something positive going forward. But to the extent that AIB is seen by the US as something that's going to affect its its interests in the World Bank or the ADB, um, then I think it's probably a thorn.
1: Why do you think the US has this, the US government has this relentlessly negative attitude towards AIIB, even though the facts, I think, speak to a, what should be a different conclusion
2: maybe it, they need time to see how it actually operates in practice
1: you have the constituent documents you have what do you say 27, 27 projects now that have been financed i mean the jury is kind of in <laughs> you know it you kind of but the when you talk to the US government, it is really an example of what we don't want China to become. I would argue, as I have in speeches, that, you know, 11 years ago, when Bob Zellick gave his talk at the National Committee's annual dinner and called for China to be a responsible stakeholder, this is a bright, shining example of China being a responsible stakeholder. Transparent governance.
2: Yeah, it even has a clause about transparency. And you asked about the policy. They have a policy on um, public information, um, which is comparable to the others. They're now going through an open process of revising it and getting comments from around the world. So it's different from Chinese banks in that way. It is more open and transparent. But what do you think
1: causes this in the U.S. government? The optics. The optics of the bank. The optics of it not having been initiated by America. And perhaps if it was done jointly, it might have had mm-hmm. different results.
2: But, you know, it's an instrument. And when I look at the other banks, you know, the largest shareholder has played those instruments differently at different times. There's a. The quorum for Inter-American Development Bank decisions requires two-thirds of the voting power. And there are times when the United States has had more than 33 and a third percent. And if there wasn't a consensus on what the US wanted, they have, don't show up for meetings. There's a, it was sad for me, in a way, to see in the history the documented level of politicization Of decision-making because inside first they all have clauses that say non-political and second in the day-to-day work of the World Bank you know you don't get a lot of interference from different countries whether it's in French colonies or US political I know nobody outside believes that but you know it's not there are 250 or 300 projects a year you don't sit there saying gee I wonder what the Treasury thinks so It may be, if you were a long-time observer of multilateral development banks, you might say, well, we kind of expect that China will act the same way as everybody else.
4: Jerry. I think the answer to spell out the optics is this was the first sign that there is, after the fall of the Soviet Union, a major player in the world who's taking an initiative to not challenge the United States, but at least present additional possibilities for the world, a challenge, I think. It's psychological. If you ask why, in another context, the US hasn't uh, adhered to the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea, it's because of dispute resolution. We don't want to submit to the same dispute resolution that other countries do when they sign up. But what about dispute resolution here? You haven't said anything. Is it plain vanilla? When we look at the uh, OBOR BRI, the Belt and Road Initiative, dispute resolution is creating enormous stir problems. (laughs) And China is offering options that I don't think people ought to accept where does dispute resolution come in in this arrangement
2: so disputes between members and the bank there's a never use clause about how they can discuss those or what kind of discussions they could have but in terms of operations so the rules which are public for lending operations and guarantees for the mostly the public sector side have a, an arbitration clause Um, and they actually refer to UNCITRAL rules and the Permanent Court at The Hague. Um, A couple of the other MDBs, particularly the European Bank and the African Bank, have similar clauses. The World Bank and the Asian Development Bank have kept the same clause they've had since 1965 for ad hoc arbitration, and none of them have ever had an arbitration. But I don't know what the clauses will look like for the private sector operations, and I s- suspect those are much more a function of meeting your principles and having different options because you're probably not in the lead necessarily on the transaction.
4: Uh, what about disputes between a foreign investor and the government of another country?
2: If it's not an a-, a World Bank or AIB project, it's the That's not something that would be covered. In the case of the World Bank Group, there is an affiliate called the International Center for the Settlement of Investment Disputes, ICSID, which is a home to investor state arbitration. But AIB doesn't have something like that. You don't
4: see them spawning a similar entity?
2: Uh, Not lean, clean, and green.
1: (laughs) David.
3: Well, answer to answer your question, Steve, as somebody who's had the privilege of serving in U.S. Department of Energy, State Department, and the White House, um, I think the AIIB is a trifecta of forces that raise skepticism and questions within the U.S. political system. Is uh, first, you have mistrust in China. Second, you have skepticism about multilateralism overall. Is Jerry says we have even joined the UN Convention on Law of the Sea, which is something that our Navy and oil industry and environmental community all support, but we still can't get over the opposition to multilateralism to join. So says, Mistrust to China, opposition to multilateralism, and then budget stress. I mean, really, in a, in a period in which you have such problems allocating money for everything, giving money to an institution that sort to of give money to foreigners through China, I mean, it's pretty easy to be against that within the U.S. political yeah. system. Why well, think all of that driving the opposition within the U.S. political system. As this discussion, this great discussion demonstrates, it doesn't really have anything to do with the performance of AIB. I mean, the AIB is, you know, can, can perform up to international standards, and that barely addresses any of these yeah. concerns. But then I have one follow-up question for you, Natalie. Um, what do you think are the odds that the second president of the AIAB will be a non-Chinese?
2: They're not negligible. <laughs> and if you had asked me 10 years ago about the president of the World Bank, I would have said it was negligible, that it would be not be a US national. The last decision was not unanimous, which was in, in, the, uh, in the World Bank. There was actually an election. Um, there was a president-designate of the AIB. And uh, I had the great privilege of managing that election, because everybody else was conflicted out. <laughs> Mm -hmm. (laughs) and they said let's have the chief counsel do it so we we basically (laughs) followed Um, the process in the other multilateral development banks the ministers were asked to send in nominations they were given a qualifications list Um, the chief negotiators who were the proxies for the board um, got to you know interview the two candidates and they agreed by consensus that Jin Lee Chun was the appropriate president designate there was a Russian candidate um, Mm -hmm. who also participated and um, that was. It was, I suppose, one of the reasons it was consensus was because I kept explaining what would happen if they didn't reach consensus, and we we had that negotiation um, in in Georgia, and uh, I had asked them for some kind of box to put the ballots in. I mean, I had everything ready, you know, printed names and ballots and tellers and whatever you need for an election. And I kept saying, and they brought out these sort of transparent boxes that they actually use for elections in Georgia. They kind of go house to house. Transparent so boxes. So it's like, we're going to have one of those, and you're going to come up and put your ballot in there. And I think I made it sound so awful. that uh, my, my explanation in the geopolitics aligned and... Um, It was a decision by consensus. And I have to say that, and there will be many other reasons to decide on presidents of institutions, but the Chinese put up someone who had been in the Ministry of Finance, who'd been on the World Bank board for several years, who, after he left the Ministry of Finance, was the ranking vice president of the Asian Development Bank for five years and then was the chairman of the Chinese Sovereign Wealth Fund for five years. So to find somebody of that generation with that level of outside experience, knowing how these particular institutions work, but also knowing how the financial world works, is pretty unusual. Uh, It won't be so unusual five years or 10 years from now for Chinese or others, because I think we've all seen the generational differences
1: people's experience. And also incredibly articulate. I mean, a remarkably articulate person, given English is not his native language, his ability to express himself.
2: He was a Shakespearean scholar. He was a Shakespearean <laughs> scholar.
1: Uh, we're going to need to close, but before we go, what was the high moment of this intense period? What What was what gave you the most satisfaction?
2: I guess two moments. One was the final negotiations when the chairman asked if anyone had an objection to the final text of the agreement and nobody said anything (laughs) and i just sat there and nobody said anything and i thought that was pretty wonderful um and then the inaugural meeting which was actually when the bank legally you know became an entity Uh, again because there was nobody else i was both the secretary for the meeting and the general and the acting general counsel and the acting secretary um and that was quite wonderful to see you know actually see the you know the board of governors that's referred to 125 times in here to see them sitting around the table you know to have Cleared their, you know, Ministry of Foreign Affairs documents and making sure that they actually had acceded to the treaty and the checks had cleared. Um, you know, that was pretty wonderful.
1: Cool. It's pretty wonderful that you participated in history the way you did. But thanks for being you with us lucky. this afternoon too.